Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Ronan Steinberg, the author of The Afterlives of Terror, Facing the Legacies of Mass Violence in Post-Revolutionary France. And the book was published by Cornell University Press in 2019. Hi there, Ronan. Hello, Roxanne. Hi. Thank you for having me. It's very nice to be here. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Before I ask you about anything else, could you just let us know where you are and how you're doing during this challenging period of global pandemic? Yeah, we are in Ann Arbor, which is where we live. And, you know, I'm doing okay. We're teaching 100% online at my university. That has been challenging, but it's getting done. And, you know, the pandemic is quite present in my home because uh, nobody's sick, but my spouse is an, uh, a physician, an anesthesiologist at the hospital here. So from the beginning, uh, from March, this has been a big subject because it affected her, you know, her work a great deal. Mm-hmm. But we're okay. So Ronan, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your background and what brought you to the study of France and the subject of the revolution in particular? Yeah. So I, I was uh, born and raised in uh, Israel. And I think I got to uh, French history when I was an undergrad at uh, Tel Aviv University in Israel. I took a course with a professor on the historiography of the French Revolution. And that course had a deep impact on me. The the guy wasn't even a historian of France. He was a Germanist. And uh, in that course, I encountered the work of Robert Darnton, particularly the book Forbidden Bestsellers of Pre-Revolutionary France. You know, it's one of those moments where I read the book I can rem- I can re- recreate in my mind where I was when I was reading it because it really blew my mind. I had never read history like that before. And I remember thinking when I read Bob Darnton's book that I want to do what this guy does. And the subject of this book in particular? The subject of this book, you know, I don't have a direct path story, you know, to tell you I encountered this document or that document. It wasn't like that. Mm. I, was in, I was in graduate school. This was at the University of Chicago, and I needed, to, you know, I was looking for a topic. I knew I was interested in um, what historians refer to, or what many people refer to as the reign of terror, but I didn't know what to do on it because it's a subject that's been written about quite a bit. And here, too, I encountered the book. I think I was literally roaming in the stacks uh, of the library, and I stumbled on the book of Bronislav Bachko, Ending the Terror. And... Um, simply posing the question which he poses in the book, which is, you know, how did the terror of the French Revolution end? I remember thinking I'd never thought about that question. I never thought that ending the terror was you know, a subject worthy of examination. And that kind of got me thinking and I started developing the project. So just to follow up on that, there's this idea that the end of the terror was a process. And that is, this is really something that you're exploring throughout this book. You know. In revolutionary historiography that I'm familiar with, there's been a tendency to tell the story of that moment in the revolution, the terror, 
that it comes to an end, a clear end, on this particular date, right? Nine Thermidor in the revolutionary calendar, Nine Thermidor year two, it's July 27, 1794, with the downfall of Robespierre. And, you know, the terror, there's, as I know it, there was debate about everything to do with it except about its ending. Like the end was the one thing that was always clear in the literature. This is when it ends, right? Um, and after that starts something else, a reaction or whatever you want to, however you want to characterize the following period. And Bachko says, you know, the end is not clear and it's also not an event. It's a process and it's a process that the revolutionaries are conscious of and discussing. So what Bachko's book got me thinking about is, you know, I thought, well, events that are characterized by massive violence like the terror, I mean, the way I say to myself is they don't end when they end. Because when they end, supposedly like on that date, Ninth Thermidor, you know, they leave in their wake a lot of traces. There are victims, there are perpetrators, there are other people influenced by, by, by these events. And for them, you know, there's many years of dealing with what they experienced or what they saw. So end for whom did this event end on Ninth Thermidor, you know? Mm-hmm. For the people that I write about in this book, I think what I try to show is that it did not end. It ended, but it wasn't over. And to explore that process and this not overness of the terror, you're really bringing concepts, frameworks to the study of the revolutionary period and the aftermath of the terror. You're bringing notions that might be more familiar to historians and others from the study of the mass violence episodes of the 20th century, and in particular, the study of the Holocaust. So how did you come to the bringing together of trauma, transitional justice, coming to terms with the past, with the study of the period of the terror? You know, one of the things that I did uh, in uh, kind of uh, preparing a little bit for the interview was I found my dissertation proposal, which I haven't looked at since... uh, (laughs) I don't know when. Probably I didn't look at it even a day after I defended it. But anyway, I looked at the proposal and those terms are not there at all. None of these things are there. No trauma, no transitional justice. What was there was the question, but there was no mechanism in the proposal. How are you going to address the question? It's kind of amazing. They let me go through with it, but they did. Anyway, (laughs) I realized that the question is broad and I needed a way to think about it. Bachko's book, he focuses on political discourse, you know, uh, literally on the speeches from the convention the Legislative Assembly, and I knew that I was not satisfied with that. I wanted to get a little bit on the ground, go to the archival documents. So I needed a framework, and I think I started reading widely on what I call difficult past. I call it that way. Some other people use that term, but I started reading widely, and somewhere along the line, I can't remember where, I encountered the term transitional justice. And the first time that I read what it was, it immediately, it was like a lightning, because I thought, Okay, that's what I'm looking for. I cannot apply it in any direct way to the time of the French Revolution, but the set of questions that scholars of transitional justice raise and address and discuss, that resonated with me deeply. And yeah, their world of transitional justice is rooted in the post-Holocaust sensibility. Hmm. I assume that there's also something to do with the fact that I'm Israeli. You know, the Holocaust is always there in the background, but that's something that uh, I'm actually... Kind of, I try not to excavate too much, actually, <laughs> that part huh. of it. But I'm sure it's there. I don't, I don't necessarily want to push you on the question of, you know, what is it that draws you to, to using a framework that's so connected to Holocaust studies, 
personally, but it is the case, and you kind of set this up in the introduction to the book, that you're exploring the French Revolution in a broad sense and the terror in particular as part of, you know, the foundational past drawing on, uh, I think it's Alain Confino, of the modern period. And of course, there's all kinds of contests about how we define the modern period, but of modernity. And the notion that that era really is that for the period of modernity that follows, and that what not necessarily replaces it, but kind of takes over in a pretty intense way in the 20th century after, you know, the Second World War. And I think you say this kind of really takes hold around the 1970s is the Holocaust in terms of, you know, the question of modernity, that it sort of takes the same kind of uh, space as the French Revolution does prior to that point. There's a specific set of reasons for you and for potentially others to bring to bear the thinking through about difficult pasts, about trauma, about mass violence, even though you're not saying the revolution and the Holocaust are the same, that there's a relationship between those events as foundational pasts that you're exploring in the book. So, of course, I'm trying not to draw an analogy between the events, the Holocaust and the French Revolution, but as you said, I see them as connected in in the way that they shape the historical consciousness of an era, at least Mm. in certain parts of the world. Let me limit that because I don't think it's global necessarily. One thing that I want to say is that, you know, uh, when I became interested in the French Revolution, it was still when, you know, as an undergrad and the early years of graduate school, it was still when the dust was settling from the bicentennial of the French Revolution. There was an avalanche of publications and a lot of debates. And much of the debates had to do with the terror, which was being recasted as this kind of foundation of 20th century totalitarian regimes. Mm. Even if most historians did not make the argument explicitly, their rhetoric hinted at it. Even in a book like Simon Shama's Citizens, which is a bestseller in 1989, throughout the book you find these allusions. This is not simply an analogy that he's making. It actually seems to be hinting that the totalitarian regimes of the 20th century, which includes both Soviet Stalinism and Nazi Germany, and that the foundations of that are in the terror. And a lot of historians of the revolution were deeply unhappy with that, right? Because it seems mm-hmm. to it seems to delegitimize the revolution or paint it, you know, the revolution for a long time was an optimistic story, at least for many on the left. And that seemed to recast the revolution in a light that is very negative. And so there's all these debates going on, and the connection was made. And my intervention is that was to think, okay, I'm not interested in fighting back against the you know these kind of illusions what i think is i think there's an opportunity here it's an opportunity to raise different questions about the revolution that had not been raised before mm-hmm. and what i saw in the historiography that came out of the bicentennial is not so much a desire to draw a negative image of the revolution but i thought to myself this is a history that's written in the 1960s 1970s 1980s of the revolution and the horizon with which these historians are operating is already a horizon that's shaped by the 20th century catastrophes. In a way, we cannot avoid but raise those kinds of questions because the shadow of the catastrophes is too large. If you are aware of it as a historian, you can actually open new vistas onto the revolution. Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely does. And I think one of the things that the book does uh, in a way that I find really compelling is that you make the case convincingly, I think, that we can use these frameworks and ideas to think about 
the revolutionary past and in particular the years, decades that followed the period of the terror, you know, that period roughly 93, spring of 1793, 1793, let's just be clear, to the late, you know, to the summer of, of 1794, that we can use these framework, this framework and these notions, and that that is not about making any kind of equivalency, but that you are using a vocabulary that may not have existed in the late 18th, early 19th century, but the phenomena and the experiences, the residues and legacies of those types of experiences existed prior to the use and, you know, to the availability and the use of a vocabulary, like the ones we get from 20th century post-Holocaust studies, contemporary psychology, whatever, whatever it is that we're talking about as, as a set of frameworks. And I find that to be in general, a pretty compelling response to, you know, it wouldn't just be you who would get accused potentially of being anachronistic or something um, to say that just because we didn't have the vocabulary to talk about a thing doesn't mean the thing wasn't there. So first of all, I, I, I don't know if I say it explicitly in the book, I don't remember, but I've certainly written it in the past in some article or another where I, I come out as it is and I say, yes, I do think that a certain level of anachronism is useful and mm-hmm. fruitful in historical thinking. In fact, to be honest, and I'm going to make even a more uh, provocative statement, I think it's inevitable that historians are anachronistic in one way or another. I think that's, I think all history is anachronistic in one way or another. When people address the question to me about the, uh, the book, so they oft- the anachronism uh, problems often come up around transitional justice, right? But never around trauma, because that seems to be, uh, in people's mind, um, so naturalized. Like, of course, people are traumatized. In all times and places, people are traumatized by traumatizing things, right? But when I discuss trauma in the book, I actually make a point of saying, well, yeah, but they didn't have that framework. It's not just the concept. It's the entire medical philosophical baggage that the concept of trauma is embedded in. That was not there. So how did they think about events that we would call traumatic, but without without that entire baggage, right? Without that entire language, without trauma speak. That's for me as an example of how I'm trying to walk a fine line. Mm-hmm. Right, I try to use the concept uh, uh, critically. The same thing with transitional justice. I think I do say the concept is new, but the dilemmas that it articulates are not new. And I try to show in the book, look, these people argued about accountability and responsibility and re- rehabilitation for victims, all the stuff that is at the center of transitional justice. They argued about it, not with the tools that we have, not with the rhetoric that we have, but the dilemmas are there. When I was working on the manuscript or at some point along the line, I remember being worried about the anachronism and about that people will think that all I'm doing is creating an analogy between the revolution and the Holocaust. And at some point, I got an advice, a piece of advice from a very wise historian. I won't say her name, but she's a historian of slavery in the US. And she told me, look, if you're worried about that, then just say in the intro, just be very explicit, say it simply. It might look as if I'm saying X and Y, that's not what I'm trying to do. And she said, and then move on. Because people will take from it what they take of it. You know, that's, say it and be done. So Ronan, let's just uh, get a little bit concrete about the sort of parameters of the project here. The book is called The Afterlives of the Terror. And that plural refers to a number of different things. But it does, you know, the title doesn't have dates in it. So if you had to, if 
if you were going to tell us, okay, the material that I look at, the kind of ground that I'm covering, I start in the 1790s, let's say, and where does the book take us to? So most of the material in the book falls between the 1790s and the 1830s. And and one of the decisions that I took, which was practical, but I think also based in uh, in, in, in uh, solid uh, sociological theory, was to focus on the generation that experienced the things firsthand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that generation, the lifespan, more or less corresponds to, uh, you know, the period that I'm delineating here, up to the 1830s. Yeah, and I think that part of the rationale for that has to do with the way that you set up the project in terms of wanting to look at that space before experience becomes full-on narration and history, you know, where we're still in the kind of realm of memory. Do you want to say something about, about how those ideas of experience, memory, history, narration kind of figure in terms of deciding to work on that generation of the revolution, the generation of the terror? One of the things about the French Revolution is that people are writing histories of the revolution while the revolution is going on. So mm-hmm. there are immediate histories of it written all the time in pamphlet form, in book form, you know, etc. But I remember reading, uh, I think it was Peter Fritsche's book. He's a historian of Weimar Germany, Nazi Germany, but he wrote a book about the revolutionary period called Stranded in the Present. But it was about the rupture in time that the revolution introduced into the experience of Europeans. Uh, that book is not necessarily archival, but I was struck by the disorientation that a lot of people felt in his book, not only in France, but in Europe, in other parts of Europe, including the Germanic lands, and the difficulty of narrating what they were seeing in front of their eyes, because the changes were coming so quickly one after the other. How did people make sense of what they were living through if there was such difficulties in narrating it? The, the 1820s, 1830s are when we get these first big narratives, you know, Jules Michelet, these kind of historians who wrote the big narratives of revolution that shaped how people thought about the revolution for a long time. I wanted to capture a moment before a lot of people had a clear sense of what is this revolution? What sense do we make of it? I wanted to capture or to write about that confusing, chaotic, uh, fluid moment. And Mm. that's what I tried to focus on. So let's talk about the structure of the book, because in some ways, one of the things I find really interesting about what you've done here is that you are tackling these huge conceptual regions, right? In terms of, you know, trauma coming to terms with the past, you're trying to negotiate using these perhaps more recent, and by recent, I mean, you know, the last 60, 70 years, um, frameworks and ideas to talk about uh, the late 18th, early 19th century. So, and you know, you're tackling the historiography of the revolution and specifically of the terror. So there's a lot going on here. And then you figured out a way to structure the book uh, in terms of these big ideas, naming, accountability, uh, redress, uh, remembrance and commemoration, and then haunting. And we'll talk a little bit more about each of the, the chapters in the territory you cover in them, but you've anchored each one of those explorations uh, into a broader set of ideas and a a big kind of conceptual field in very concrete and specific cases, archival materials, questions. So could you talk a little bit about how you kind of worked that out and how you came to the plan for the book? It was very important for me to uh 
uh, anchor these uh, concepts, accountability, redress, whatever, in, in cases. I think in some chapters it may have been the other way around. I may have stumbled on the case and then kind of figured out, well, what concern am I seeing here actually in the case? But the structure of the book, that was inspiration from other scholars. Can I even say which? Of course. Shout-outs are most welcome. Yeah. So the, the, the one of the shout-outs, and I, I don't think she'll ever listen to this, but it's a book by Toby Meyer Fong, who is a historian of 19th century China. But uh, she wrote a book that's called What Remains, about coming to terms with civil war uh, in 19th century China. Never mind that that book is astounding because she's an amazing historian. But the way she like she wrote her book and every chapter that she had was simply called things like words, bodies. And I thought, yeah, I like that because th- what we're dealing with is so amorphous. We need to center it on something. There were other sources, but her book was really, really played a major part here. That's really interesting. So that first chapter, Ronan, the... The nomenclature chapter, naming a difficult past after Thermidor, after nine Thermidor, really looks at the ways that the terror, you know, was identified as the terrain of a difficult past. And in that chapter, you're exploring uh, different perceptions and ideas about violence and its relationship to social order. You're looking at the way that the terror, the end of the terror is a process that's kind of elusive. How does naming kind of hold it all together in this chapter? And what is is or are the anchors that this chapter kind of focuses on? I think I operate with the assumption that we don't have access to reality, only to the stories about, <laughs> about reality. So while, while the terror was going on, there was a rhetoric in the revolutionary leadership that justified, legitimated it, you know, tied it to the objectives of the revolution which it made sense. When it was over, I thought to myself, well, you know, I need to look at how its meaning was transformed from a means to save the Republic, which was the common kind of uh, understanding of it, to something of a mass crime, if I can say. How did that kind of change transformation happen? The naming that I use in the title is very broad. I don't mean name with the word terror itself, although I do discuss that also a little Mm -hmm. bit. But the naming, I mean transforming a what I think must have been a chaotic series of series of actions and reactions, right? Transforming them to some kind of coherent narrative that made sense. And there were so many such narratives, and I didn't address them all. And you know, um, I'll say something about that chapter. In the middle of it, or some, at some point in the chapter, what got me actually thinking, there there was actually an archival, uh, it's not a find, but it's a document that I stumbled on. Um, and that's the letter from a citizen, an ordinary citizen, who wrote to uh, complain about these new words that had been introduced into the French language during the revolution. And he used a term for the terror that I had never heard before, and the term was sanguinocratie in Hmm. French, right? Uh, From the French sanguin, Latin sanguin, bloody, and the Greek kratia, the power of, so like the power of blood or bloody rule. And I'd never encountered that name before. And I thought, people called the terror sanguinocratie? What else did they call the terror? That got me uh, mm-hmm. thinking about the attempt to find a language to talk about what people were seeing. And I think that's something that's present throughout the revolution, not only in the terror. The constant struggle to find a language for new forms of power and new forms of social activism that didn't have a language for them. And it is an attempt, right? It's not a, there's no clear end to that process, right? 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things as somebody who teaches the revolution, but it's not at all my area of uh, specialization, I, I kept asking myself these questions. This happens often when I'm reading books for, for this podcast, where I ask myself, like, how do I teach this? And how am I going to have to teach this differently now that I've read this book? And the first chapter where you're kind of exploring that question, you know, just made me realize the shorthands that I use when I'm moving very quickly through the revolution in a survey class, or even when I'm teaching the French Revolution uh, for a longer period of time in a seminar that, you know, I say terror and then kind of move along pretty quickly and slowing that process down and sort of asking questions about how things were named and how people began to tell stories. And as you say, explore this language, political and cultural language for what has just happened. In the second chapter, Ronan, you are also exploring something that I know a little bit about potentially happening, but realized when I was reading this chapter on accountability and the case of Joseph Lebon, the whole notion and the whole uh, set of events around the trials of public officials who played a role in the terror. Here, you're thinking about this through the lens of transitional justice. I didn't before this even really know the story of how did that work? You know, how, what were, what was that process of trials like? Uh, how many people were put on trial. Uh, I didn't even really know that history in any kind of depth. So could you talk a little bit about how you sort of landed on the case of Joseph Lebon as your principal focus in this chapter? Yeah, but before that, I have to say what you just said about teaching the revolution, that, you know, now you might need to slow down. <laughs> I, I don't slow down. When I, I wrote the book and I don't slow down when I teach. <laughs> I just go from the terror to Napoleon. I'm like, I am not talking about this stuff. <laughs> You know, so we're fine. Let's continue doing things the way you're doing is my <laughs> advice. Uh, but anyway, you know, um, the uh, trials after the terror are trials of people who, in a shorthand, let's call them uh, functionaries in the apparatus of the terror. Okay. Mm. Uh, and they were put on, tra- and several of them were put on trial after Nine Thermidor because, of course, Robespierre and um, the 96 or so. Uh, members of his circle or alleged members of his circle who were executed on the 10th and 11th of Thermidor uh, were executed without trial. You know, there's a period of about, after 9 Thermidor, I think two or three months where there is no clear trials. There are people who are removed from office. Uh, there's a purge of administrative personnel. That happens fairly quickly. A lot of the representatives of the revolutionary government in the provinces, provinces who were in their post during the terror, are recalled to Paris and replaced with more moderate men. I believe about 60% of them are recalled to Paris and replaced with more moderate people. So that happens rather quickly. But by the end of year two, which is kind of September of 1794, there is a sense that there's not going to be a reckoning. You know, we did this, we took the terror apart, we're moving on, right? Uh, And then in November uh, comes the first trial. And the first trial came about in many ways out of, and that's not the trial of Joseph Lebon, that's the trial of Jean-Baptiste Carrier, who was a representative in the west of France, in Nantes, so kind of close to the area of the Vendée. Mm. The Vendée, of course, is famous in the revolution, an area of this civil war and a Catholic royalist uh, uprising against the revolution. And Carrier was uh, the first trial of the series of these trials of functionaries. And his trial is well-researched and well-known. It was a super dramatic moment also in the time. I mean, in all the sources, you can see that people are following it 
reading about it. Now, in transitional justice, those kind of trials where you put several people of the apparatus of you know such a a regime that you know that engaged in such systematic violation of human rights, it's called selective sanction, right? You 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 can't prosecute everyone. So you choose, you know, a few to focus on. And in the case of the revolutionaries, the choice was rather arbitrary. In many ways, those people are scapegoated because the people who are putting them on trial are themselves implicated in the terror, right? And they are kind of, there's a self-absolving going. But Carrier was put on trial. The chief prosecutor of the Revolutionary Tribunal in Paris was put on trial. Some other people. And then my guy, Joseph Lebon, who was the last, uh, and that was the last trial. After Joseph Lebon's trial, there was an amnesty. And there's no more trials. Mm. And I came across his case. You know, I thought you were going to ask me about it. So I was kind of thinking, <laughs> where, did, where, did, where did I actually encounter him? And I swear, I, like, I don't really remember where I came across his case specifically. I knew that I wanted to write about the trials. I knew that there has a lot been written about the other trials. I came across his name. I thought, hmm, not a lot has been written about. I don't know much about this person. Um, so it was like that kind of decision. But once I got into his case and I started reading the material, even before I committed to writing about him, I read the indictment. And in the indictment in his case, there I found my puzzle, mm. right? When I read there, I found an actual, I don't know how you are, but I need a certain, I need a puzzle, something to sink my teeth into <laughs> when I work on material, right? And when I read the indictment, you know, they mentioned this case where he comes across a uh, these two women who are sitting outside of the town of Arras in the north of France, where he was the, the representatives in charge. And they were sitting outside on the ramparts that surround the city and reading a book. It was a mother and her daughter. And he assaulted them, right? And that comes up in the indictment. Mm -hmm. And that particular case, and the women are mentioned by name. But the indictment says several times the title of the book they were reading. And I remember when I read it, I thought, why does that matter what book they were reading? Why does the indictment mention it several times? So I thought, let me go and take a look at the book that they were reading. I want to see why that detail matters. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was, it was Clarissa Harlow by Samuel Richardson, which is a story about virtue betrayed, and there's rape in that story, and there's all these kind of elements. And I thought, okay, there is something here in the imagination, how they're thinking about the terror or reframing the terror in its aftermath as an attack against virtue. Right. That made me committed to the case of Libel. Well, and... This chapter is really about exploring this notion of accountability, how the question of justice comes up and is worked out through these trials, the opportunities that survivors of victims have to face their perpetrators. And you make a point in this chapter that is really there in different ways throughout the book, that how all of this is processed, narrated, but also you know, dealt with, experienced the memory of the terror, that all of this has very specific qualities and takes particular shapes because of what the revolution has yeah. changed. And so in this chapter, there's this question, and you're do working it out through the case of Joseph Lebon and through these other trials, that there's a question about how to hold people accountable in the wake of the French Revolution that has put so much stock in that notion of popular sovereignty, <laughs> how to hold individuals accountable for what has essentially been enacted by the Republic. 
Accountability and responsibility are a big subject of discussion in transitional justice. Uh, it is a, a major area of debate. It's a major dilemma. How do you establish the appropriate levels of accountability and responsibility after a mass crime? If a mass crime by definition is committed by, you know, in a way, it's systemic, right? If the system as such, whatever the system is, the entire social order is implicated in it, then how do you decide who are the individuals who are going to be held accountable? Uh, it's a dilemma that doesn't have a clear solution, but it's a dilemma that's always present. And in transitional justice circles, they say that the goal is to find the balance, and I like that phrasing, find the balance between a witch hunt and a whitewash mm. is the term that they use, right? In the revolution, what struck me when I looked at the case of Le Bon and I looked at what he was arguing in his defense and that what people were arguing around the prosecution of these revolutionaries, because these are revolutionaries who are putting on trial other revolutionaries, right? That's not new. That happened throughout the revolution. But after the terror, I wanted to see how they talk about responsibility with the understanding that almost all of them are somehow implicated in the terror. So how do they make these decisions? And I saw in the rhetoric that comes up around the trial of Le Bon a deep continuity with the early revolution. You mentioned popular sovereignty. And one of the things that I say in the chapter is, you know, Popular sovereignty entails a democratization of responsibility, at least in theory, right? Mm. If we're dealing with government by consent of those who are governed, then those who are governed share some responsibility in what the government does. I call it the Spider-Man principle. With great power comes great responsibility. It's a quote, <laughs> from, it's a quote from what Uncle Ben says to Peter Parker. Oh, I know. <laughs> and I was really happy when I found in that chapter an actual quote from the uh, National Convention a quote about the powers vested in the représentant à mission, these representative in the provinces, that says, this is an early in the terror, they must know that with the power vested in them comes a great responsibility. So somewhere in there, there's a paper to be written about the French Revolution and Spider-Man, is what I'm saying. <laughs> that dilemma doesn't exist under the old regime, because there hasn't been that democratization of responsibility. Mm -hmm. So it's a new kind of problem. It's a problem that emerges from the democratizing impulses of the revolution. What it did is it led me to see the trials in another way. I always looked at those trials as part of the reaction against the terror, part of the reaction against the Jacobins. I saw these trials as reactionary. But when I looked at it through the prism that I just described to you, accountability, democratization, responsibility, I realized, well, yeah, they're reactionary, but they're also deeply continuous with the revolution in many ways. Mm -hmm. That's what I see in the trials. That's what the point that I try to make in the chapter. So after nomenclature and accountability, you take on redress um, and this issue, this very complicated set of issues around, uh, you know, the widows of victims of the terror trying to get their names, well, their own names, but their husband's names, let's say exonerated, the return of the restitution of property in some cases, uh, burial of those who've been executed. Uh, and, you know, there are these different actors involved in, in these cases, petitioners. And again, this is all connected to the French Revolution in the sense of a new politics of property. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how redress gets worked out in this chapter through, well, some of the things that we've already talked about through the question of, of names and of property in particular? Yeah. So the uh, restitution of property is one subject that I uh, uh, wrote about in the book that I really found almost nothing about in the existing literature that I knew. 
Mm. It's mostly widows. It's not only widows, but it's mostly widows because most of the victims of the terror were men. And these widows wrote petitions, and I read the petitions. And well, I tried to understand as much as I could who were these widows. Uh, you know, are they necessarily all members of the nobility? Are they necessarily against the revolution? Are they? Can I categorize them in that in those kind of ways? But as I was working on them, what I became struck by is well, again, they are actually engaging in civic activities that in many ways were inaugurated by the revolution, right? Drafting petitions, engaging in public debates, appearing before the convention or the legis- whatever legislative authorities in their locality, making their case, you know, those kind of things. And I thought that's all part of the democratizing dynamic. They're being citizens. They're doing what citizens do. They're, they're contesting, they're presenting their case in the public arena. And there I saw, uh, again, a continuity. Regarding the... Um, a question of uh, property in the literature that I know, the revolution invented in many ways the notion of private property uh, and enshrined it as one of the uh, fundamental rights in the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, uh, the right to uh, a property. And during the revolution, property in many ways became the, for better or worse, an important condition of being a citizen. Right? Because in the revolution, there was active citizens and passive citizens, and the, the, the division between those was based on property, mm-hmm. right? among other things. So when you take property from someone in that context, it's a form of civil death. You're like banishing them from the folds of civil society. Mm. Right. So the point is that expropriation now, uh, in the context of revolution, took on a political meaning that... Um, went beyond the actual you know, financial and material hardships that you're causing to a family by taking away their property. There was other meanings then that attached to it. And so widows, uh, what I began to see in their quest for restitution, are trying to get back in, caused by their requests. Should we give them the property back? Should we not? Their individual quest for restitution becomes implicated in these much larger questions. They wanted, in many ways, the requests are to turn time back. Right to go back to the moment before the injury, right? Because it, it's often, I think it's the position of the victim, right? Give me back my life, whatever that life was. But that's the quest, and I thought that was interesting because the revolution, by definition, is a movement focused on the future, on the realization of you know a utopian, let's say, social and political order. How do you present a project that's about undoing the past? in the context of a movement that's really preoccupied with the future. Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of what I saw in these petitions and the exchanges that these petitions generated. You know, Ronan, one of the, the well, the book that just kept coming to mind for me, partly because I use it, I've used it for many years when I talk about the restoration later in the 19th century. I mean, still in, within the period of this book, but, you know, not right after the terror, um, is Antoine de Beck's book, what is it called now? I miss the titles escape. Glory and Glory and Terror. Is that what it's called? Glory, Glory and Terror. But yeah, Seven Deaths Under. The, That's uh, right. And the reason that book kept coming to mind for me is that until I read his chapter on what happened to Louis the Sixteenth's body, I never, I never thought about it. <laughs> like I never, I'd even taught the French Revolution, and I'd never. You know, I guess I'm just lucky that none of my students said, what did they do with this body? Because I would have had to say, huh, I'll go look that up. And ever since that story of 
what happened to Louis's body has become like a pretty essential. It's like a one of the core uh, references in my modern French survey because we come back to it again and again and talking about bodies and the dead and um, uh, burial and exhumation and like all of these things. So the the book comes up for, came up for me while I was re- I thought about it many times while I was reading your book and I'm bringing it up now because it's sort of that transition from this. Um, chapter on restitution to the chapter on remembrance and the mass graves of terror, the yeah. way that uh, both this theme of death, resurrection, I mean, you have the chapter on mass graves, and then we'll get to the chapter on haunting, but the, the, the morbidity of all of this, and my students always kind of laugh, they think, wow, she's really into the how morbid. <laughs> but also the practicalities, like I talk about the significance of the execution of Louis XVI, but I didn't know about, until I read Debeck's book, I didn't know about the body and what they did, and then, you know, how that became, how that's become so useful to me in the kind of symbolics I want to bring out for my students about the revolution. And here too, in these two chapters about, you know, property and restitution. And then also in the next chapter, chapter four, about the mass graves of the terror, that idea that the symbolics around the revolutionary break, the break as a death, as an execution, as a, as, you know, as a mass grave, as a, as a burial, and then a resurrection um, and a commemoration like that, all of these things have these very practical dimensions, you know, trials, uh, petitioners trying to get their property back. And then in the fourth chapter, the question of, well, there's the question of the bodies and what happens to them and whether they're exhumed and reburied, but then also the question of how to commemorate the victims, what to do with these grave sites, all of those kinds of things that you bring up in the fourth chapter. It's not really a question, but it's an opening for you to talk about the fourth chapter. Yeah. But when you were talking, it occurred to me that both the chapter about redress and the chapter about the uh, mass graves both deal with the uh, material remains of the terror. I don't know if I made that connection until talking to you, actually, in both these uh, chapters, the hmm. material remains, right? Because, I mean, property is one thing and dead bodies are another, but they're both material. Sure. Right? They're substances. Yeah. So it kind of uh, made me suddenly... Uh, realize that. Uh, Maybe there's that connection also. Hmm. It seems to me many times that in our day and era, commemoration is something or remembrance is something that we have a well-developed set of rituals and practices and rhetorics surrounding the bodies of those whose deaths carry these kind of political resonances, right? Hmm. But in a time of the revolution, you know, you're dealing with a culture that's undergoing, for better or worse, some form of secularization. Uh, the revolution, it, it, uh, this is Antoine Dubeck's point, the revolution invests bodies and in burial with political meanings that they did not have before. And so in that kind of sense, the bodies of those who were executed become something of a political minefield because if you are in a regime after the terror, whatever regime you're talking about, whether it's Napoleon or the Restoration, but you're concerned with maintaining stability, you don't want to reignite civil strife. What do you do with those bodies? Mm-hmm. And so in the chapter, we kind of follow the relatives of the victims who try to build all kinds of commemorative sites, expiatory chapels on the, on the it really interested me that they insisted on doing it physically on the site of the mass grave. Mm. 
and of course, it interested me to see how the regimes in question, and there were multiple regimes after the revolution, right? How they reacted to these efforts at commemoration. And, you know, they reacted to it by and large along predictable lines. That is, the Napoleonic tried to suppress it because Napoleon was concerned above all with maintaining stability. The restoration of the Bourbons tried to highlight certain aspects of the revolution's horror because it worked for their political interests. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was a kind of a new tolerance, a new openness for this kind of commemoration under the restoration. The reaction of the political regimes was predictable. What was less predictable in the chapter and what I really enjoyed finding out about when I did the research was the emotional investment of these family members who were engaged in that. I remember when I did the research that I kept thinking, do you think they thought that, you know, 200 years from now, somebody's going to dig up the (laughs) letters and stuff like that, that looked, you know, invested in that they produced around these things and was going to research about them. That That's the chapter where something about the materiality of it, the visceral nature of it, really, I felt, gave me a, a kind of a connection into the concerns of these people. The final chapter of the book is focused on haunting and the ghostly presence of the terror, that kind of supernatural quality that the terror has within the post-revolutionary landscape. There's haunting in a kind of broad sense, but then there's this very kind of, well, I don't want to say literal haunting because it is sort of figurative, but a focus on ghosts and the supernatural uh, in that last chapter. So do you want to tell us about how that works? That chapter, I put it in the end because I think that in many ways, you know, the, the story that the book tells to the extent that I could even call it a story. But anyway, the way that the book unfolds is you know, the chapters on accountability and on redress and even the chapter on remembrance, in a broad way, they all show people, revolutionary actors, citizens, you know, ordinary citizens, relatives of victims, whoever the people are, who are trying, are struggling to put the terror behind. Mm. The haunting chapter shows that you can't, right? Because they come back the dead. You know, the, I, I think I, I allude at some point to the, the French word for, uh, one of the French word for ghost is much more evocative in that sense than the English term, right? Revenant, those who have come mm. back, right? Um, and so the last chapter is about, you know, how there's no closure. And you're right that I use haunting in a uh, broad sense in that chapter as a thread that connects several different things that at first glance have no mm. connection to each other in that chapter. To me, they're connected because they all, to me, suggest an awareness of how that past, that is the terror, cannot really be left behind, uh, that its echoes reverberate in the landscape. And I mean both in the material landscape, but also in the mental landscape, right? They, they reverberate in it. Uh, haunting, in a way, is a metaphor. But you're right that I do actually talk about specific ghosts there, because to my surprise and to my great joy, I found these ghosts in the texts, actual ghosts, right? There's this there's this pamphlet, mm-hmm. this correspondence between two friends who had been imprisoned during the terror. One of them was executed, the other wasn't. And after the guy was executed, they, they have a correspondence between the world of the living and the world of the dead, an exchange of letters. Obviously, it's a fictional tale, but it's a fictional tale that's written in a pamphlet form within months after Nine Thermidor or a year after the fall of Robespierre. And to me, well, it says, well, why is that the format? Mm. You know, what is that actually saying? Or there's the case of the Phantasmagoria this machine for the projection of images of spirits rising from the dead. Again, at face value, there's no necessary connection to the revolution. The show itself was inaugurated in 1797. Yeah, but so what? 
you know, that doesn't mean it's connected. But what I try to show in the chapter is that the shows of the Phantasmagoria, which were multimedia shows, smoke screens and uh, sounds of glass harmonica and all kinds of things to increase the effects of uh, fear. What I try to show in the chapter is, no, but look at what they're actually showing and look at how people are reacting to it. It's clear that in many ways they're talking about that. You know, whether they know it or not, they're talking about the terror that is there and the ghostly presence, mm-hmm. right? In those kind of multimedia visual shows. Uh, I loved the material of the Phantasmagoria. That really sparked my uh, my imagination. Yeah. There is an awareness that those legacies of revolutionary violence are with us in a variety of ways around mm-hmm. us. You conclude the book with, a kind of return to the question of the relationship between this history and our more recent past uh, in the 21st century and and present. And you've shown over the course of these chapters in the book that there are all kinds of things that we get from bringing these more recent models and concepts to bear on the history of the afterlives of the terror. But you also, in this conclusion, you do this at the beginning of the book and and come back to it in the conclusion, talk about the significant differences that exist between thinking about transitional justice in this historical period and, you know, what we mean by these things in the present. You know, one major difference is that in transitional justice and in the concern that we see all around us now in social media everywhere with trauma, with the traumatized person, with the, you know, traumatized generations, what is called trauma speak or trauma talk. Both transitional justice and the concern with traumatized people are all concerns with justice. They're all concerns with trying to repair something that is wrong, right? That is is a, a violation of justice trying to repair. And in all of that, there is little, it seems to be little concern in our day and age in these kind of discussions with the um, issue of, um, well, redistribution of material resources. Mm-hmm. You know, what used to be called social and economic justice. That is something that is certainly central in the revolutionary era. One of the things that the the concern with transitional justice, it emerges, the concept itself in the 1990s, you know, the age of, I don't know, I'm going to use a short term here, neoliberalism, right? So it's concerned with kind of repairing the damages of the past, but there is no discussion of classes, of economic inequality, of those kind of things. That kind of Marxian framework is simply not there in discussions of transitional justice and stuff like that. And I think that's probably not a coincidence that it's not there. But in the revolutionary era, that is very central. Indeed, it's more central than the concerns that I'm talking about in my book, right? The concern with wealth, redistribution of wealth, those kind of questions. I think that's a major difference Mm. between the revolutionary era and our own. And in the conclusion, I think I raised the question, it's worth thinking about why it is that in our day and age, so much political energy is focused on repairing the past. Whereas in the revolution, I write about how they're concerned with repairing the past. But if I'm honest about what most of the revolutionary rhetoric and activity during the French Revolution is about, it's about building the future. Mm. And that has to do with redistributing wealth, with creating a different kind of division of material resources in society. That's totally absent, as far as I can tell, from contemporary discussions from Mm -hmm. our time. Of course, the other difference is the whole discourse level. They don't have the concepts that we have, transitional justice, trauma, all these things that we talk about 
um, and use quite freely. You know, I hadn't planned to ask you about this, uh, Ronin, but now we're talking about the present. And of course, France is going through some pretty intense drama around these major acts of violence, not mass violence, perhaps. But I, I guess, I mean, I don't want to force you to like address all of that. But, you know, I'm sure as with any book, you were working on this for a number of years, and so couldn't necessarily, you know, weren't planning on having it come out when it, when it did, and that we'd be talking about it now. But what do you think about the significance, relevance of the material that you're looking at in this book, of the ways that you're thinking about it, of these categories and concepts that you're using to explore the the legacies of the French Revolution and the terror, but also the questions of violence more broadly. Like, how does your book feel to you as something that might participate in broader conversations about the question of violence in 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 modern France? So here there's actually something that I remember thinking about when I read about this attacks. We're talking about the, the uh, murder of the teacher, right, uh, whose last name is Paty, but I forget his first name, maybe Samuel, Samuel Paty. And then in the Nice, in the cathedral in Nice, uh, these assaults. And what people seem to have been in the media in France when I read uh, the mainstream newspapers, there was a lot of uh, um, emphasis on the mode of the mm-hmm. assassination, right, that, that Paty was decapitated. And a lot of historians of the revolution that are on my Facebook page write quite um, indignantly about, quote-unquote, Islamist terrorism, mm-hmm. right, in France. They don't use the term terrorism, but whatever they, they call it, you know, Islamic fanaticism and mm-hmm. stuff like that. You know, they insist on the French laïcité, we can show pictures of Muhammad and whatever's going, you mm-hmm. know, those kind of debates in France. And I thought to myself, well, that's interesting. You're historians of the revolution. Most of you are pro-revolutionaries. You don't problematize the decapitations during the revolution. But this one, you look at this guy who is, you know, uh, who uh, murdered uh, Paty, whoever, and the decapitation bothers you a great oh. deal. It seems to you like it's beyond the pale of civilized conduct. And I thought, you know, what are the political frameworks that make it possible for you as historians and for the French to, in a way, understand the political significance of cutting off heads in 1793, but make it completely impossible for you to try and contextualize, not justify the murder of Patillon, should be clear, I'm not trying to do that, but to try and contextualize, you know, why are these things happening? I think that, uh, I don't see any direct relevance, but if I see a relevance of my book to this is that the debate on violence is very emotional, obviously, it's very polarized. We are living in a polarized world right now mm-hmm. anyway, not just about violence. But I think the debates about you know what to do with these things once they happen, like what do you do with the awful things that have taken place, there is great opportunity there to explore and to open up alternative political meanings, new ways of seeing the society in which we operate. I'm not sure that these new ways are being taken up in France right now. I'm not sure that in the current environment that's even mm. possible. I understand the horror that people are feeling, but I would push back against the easy line that's drawn in the reaction to these murders between them and us, whatever the them mm. and us is. One last question. What are you working on now? I don't have a clear project that I'm uh, still a big project that I'm committed to, but I will say this. There is a question that I raise in the conclusion to the book, and I don't know how to answer it yet but I have the question. 
there's this observation that I'm not the one who made, or I'm not the only one who made. That the kind of, in a general term, the observation is that the victim as a category and the traumatized person have become kind of prime political subjects in our mm. era. When I say subjects, I don't mean a topic. I mean subjects like subjectivity, mm -hmm. you know, prime political subjectivity in our era. If, if that observation is correct, why did that happen? When did that happen? How did that happen? That's another difference from the revolution. Because these revolutionaries were marked, you know, the, or not revolutionaries, but the people that I write about were certainly marked by revolutionary violence and to react to it in ways that I talk about in the book. But as far as I can tell, their victimization, so to speak, does not seem to have become a, a, a fundamental part of their identity. Whereas in our day and age, these traumatizing experiences do seem to be constitutive of a kind of political subjectivity of a distinct identity. And I wonder, you know, why is that actually the case, if that's correct? Now, I don't know yet how to go about answering that question. I'm not sure that the answer will allow me to remain within the confines of French history. I don't see any reason that you need to focus on France to answer that question. Mm. So again, I find myself posing a broad question with the daunting task of, okay, the I find the question interesting, but how do I turn it into feasible research, right? Something that I can actually look at. That I don't have an answer to yet. And then the other thing I want to mention, and that's a much narrower thing that I'm trying to work with, but I don't know what it will lead to, is, so that guy that I wrote about, Joseph mm -hmm. Lebon, it turns out that Jean-Paul Sartre, the philosopher, started writing a movie script about Joseph Lebon, but what? he never finished it. <laughs> Yeah, wow. he never finished. Uh, he never finished. He, there, all there is is uh, about 26 uh, handwritten folio pages that are preserved. Are you ready for this? In Austin, <laughs> Texas, uh, in the Harry Ransom Center in Austin, Texas. So, you know, I went and read these. I work with this document, and I'm kind of thinking, I want to write something about it. But the play that Salto started didn't finish is, you know, he didn't finish it. It's unclear what exactly he wanted to do there. But of course, when I when I hear that Sartre wanted, you know, tried to write a script about Le Bon, my curiosity was sparked. So I might turn that into something. Well, that all sounds really interesting, and I hope you'll keep me posted, Ronan. I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and for writing the book. Thank you. I, I really appreciate this opportunity. <laughs>